morning. Hi, my name is Ann McNeil and I am the Master Wealth Builder, helping you to build a stronger and better life and business and a volunteer with Better Investing. And Ioni McNeil and myself are hosting this show entitled Hashtag My Investing Story. And our special guest tonight, as we talk about investing in yourself and investing in your community is none other than Mr. Damon A. Williams. But telling you a little bit about the organization, Better Investing is a not-for-profit 501c3 nonprofit organization that helps individual investors with educational products and services. And we're all volunteers, so we're not selling anything, mm -hmm. but helping us to learn how to analyze stocks and how to invest. And so with that, I'd like to introduce and reintroduce my co-host, Ms. Ioni McNeil, who's going to uh, interview our guest. Ioni? Hello, hello. Hey there. How you doing, Damon? I'm, I'm doing well, all things considered. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to, to be alive and to be in this conversation with y'all. Well, I did want to start off uh, today's session with a moment of silence. Uh, just to restore peace in our hearts and a peace in our minds for what's going on. So let's take a moment of silence. Okay. I'm glad I breathed through that. So uh, let's get into the fun part. Let me just um, introduce you from my memory, right? Mm -hmm. um, what's interesting is that you are like, to me, and I think this is my first time ever telling you this, but uh, I feel like we are kindred spirits, almost mm -hmm. like the male and female version of the same person. Because mm -hmm. Because you were the only other person that I knew from 20 something years ago that had an identical um, start in investing. We both started when we were seven. Um, we both had like the aha moment about Nike stock. We both got into that just from observation from mm -hmm. our mothers both exposing us to the world of investing and all of that. So. With that being said, I've always, you know, kept an eye on you, even from afar. I've always been in Miami. You've always been in Chicago. But, you know, you know, seeing you in the news, in magazines about the work that you did um, and have been doing has been amazing. Um, in fact, I'm glad I'm just not remembering this. You were featured in Time magazine. Yeah. I saw the article before I flew to Senegal about two weeks ago um, because of your new career. And um, with that being said, we'll get into more about that. But I did just want to say that to give people a, a sense of my view of you. And I'm going to ask you the same question I ask everybody, which is, how did you come to invest? What was money? What was the money relationship like? for you in your childhood and in your home? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm gonna, one, thank you for having me here. This is a beautiful platform. Uh, I, 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 I'm in love with like the family spirit and ethos of this. It does feel very much kindred and I'm honored and humbled to be here, particularly on such a, such a heavy day. Um, and to that answer, like my, my story with money, um, I'm gonna give a brief like, small silly version and, and then give like the real story. Uh, so at, at a very young age, I, I had a love of money and particularly like dollars specifically. Uh, my dad's an entertainer and performer. So he works in a cash business. So I really love like seeing money and seeing cash. And so at, at a young age, like seeing hundreds of dollars uh, was like the, the thing for me. So I, one of my first memories with money is I would maybe four or five years old, I uh, had a birthday party and my grandfather who was a showerer, was a gift giver, gave me a hundred dollar bill and I didn't recognize it as a hundred dollars. I was like, okay, thanks. Um, and then the next year, maybe if I was four, I was five, if I was three, then I was four, something like that. He came with a stack of a hundred singles. 
Um, and I thought I was rich. <laughs> so at a little four or five years old, I tried to walk around everywhere with these hundred singles in my pocket and counting them every day and budgeting it out. Didn't have nothing I wanted to buy at the time, candy, whatever, uh, but, but really felt like something. So that, that's something that like kind of opened something in me. And I think also opened a recognition of my mother um, because at the same time she was going through a transformation uh, that she wanted to instill in her children. Uh, and so I think that's part of the story we'll get into, but I'll talk about like what she started with me. Uh, so at that time I was also growing a love for, for money and basketball. So I thought I was gonna be a basketball player so I could make a lot of money. Uh, and I'm a 90, I'm born in 92, so I'm a 90 Chicago baby. Uh, so that means, you know, was in love with, with Jordan. Um, and, and the Nike marketing machine did a really amazing job of creating this mythical figure, this aspirational black man with which we all want to be like, if you bought his shoes, you could fly, you could be superhuman. Uh, and I was hook, line and sinker to, to, to that marketing work. Um, and so as an intervention, what my mother challenged was, before you get a pair of Nike shoes, you have to save up and get a, own a pair of, own a share of Nike stock. Um, and so that was the, the, the origin. Um, and at the time in the better investing model, um, she was starting a, a, a youth investment club out of the investment club that she had built with like some of her girlfriends. Um, and this youth investment club with a traveling club where all the young people had their own portfolio. So we didn't have to have the like tension of voting or, you know, young people are a little bit more transient. So if you had to go to soccer or if your parents move, we didn't have to like liquidate because uh, they had so much trouble with that as adults. Uh, so in 1999, my mother set up Ujama Jr. Ujama is an Americanized pronunciation of Ujama which is Swahili for Cooperative Economics, one of the principles of Kwanzaa. Um, and so by age five, I had started learning about investing, was reading the, the youth material that uh, NAIC uh, uh, used, to, used to give out. Um, like, you know, at the table, it was very much like, this is the, the type of mother that she saw herself in the legacy that she wanted to pass down because she felt she was not equipped to kind of navigate markets uh, as an employee or as a consumer or as, you know, capital markets. Um, and so as she was educating herself, I as a young person who can understand concepts well, articulate things, age five, six, and seven was in this youth club that was for like preteens and teenagers. So it was middle school age kids and you know high schoolers and I'm first, second grade, learning about P ratios, memorizing the 30 companies of the Dow and talking about my portfolio and Nike stock and how I'm not just a basketball player, but I'm an owner of the company. And I go inspect the bathrooms at McDonald's because I'm an owner. Um, and this notion of ownership, uh, cause Ujamaa as this cooperative economics uh, as a piece of how do we address what we were calling, no, the, actually said it, socioeconomic inequality. Um, so as black people, uh, how can we equip ourselves uh, to be able to, to, to address, you know, inequity. Um, and so that then put me in a position because by age nine, I believe it was at a better investing conference or NAIC conference. Uh, I did a speech called the ABCs of investing um, that basically said, if I can do it, you can too. Uh, and laid out these very basic, like long-term uh, um, fundamental notions of, of, of how to, study stocks, how to build a portfolio, how to be diversified, how to build wealth. Um, and so from age nine to about 2021, that was my work or that was my ministry. Most times for free or as a volunteer thing, uh, would go to other schools, would go to other investment clubs in the Midwest, would go to conferences, would go to churches um, and talk about how we can, uh, you know, basically participate in the market as a way to ad address some of the, the, the inequity. Um, and so that, I, I think I'll stop there. That, that is my entry point. Uh, uh, and so I traveled my, my area, my community, uh, talking about how we can build power through this. And so I want to get in this conversation with y'all as in a, in a trusted way, uh, because there, there are some like contradictions or some struggles that I've had. Um, and so I, for the last five years or so in the work that I do, um, I, I haven't felt comfortable standing on the platform that I believe is amplifying uh, a system, we can name it as racial capitalism or capitalism, uh, that I think is has been really harmful to Black people. And so I, I now want to like work or build through or pull out 
how these two tensions, and I'll stop here with, I went to school and studied economics and sociology, which I called socioeconomics, uh, with the, the question of why do the North and South side of Chicago looks, look and function so differently? Uh, because I had this notion of sectors, institutions, market trends. I understood that systems were involved with how the economy works. Um, and so as I began to then learn those systems, I now am in a place where I feel like we need to push from much more transformational approaches. Yeah, and, and what university did you go to? I went to <laughs> Grinnell College. It's a, it's a liberal arts school in Iowa. Um, okay, yeah. and with you saying that you studied economics and social- Sociology. Sociology. Mm -hmm. And right when you said it, it made me think about, I went to Howard and I studied accounting and Africana studies. Yeah, and <laughs> those two worlds of awareness transformed myself and as I hear from you also transformed you but in this point and I'm glad you 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 use this as uh, your point of entry um a shout out to to Dr. Carr and Karen Hunter for the the class sessions that they're doing um I'm going to ask my mom if she has any questions from you because from this point on we're going to go on a roller coaster ride. <laughs> I, I so love that mom is here. This is, I, I wish I should have called my mom. I wish I, I, oh. I recognized that this is what this was. <laughs> yeah. Listen, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Listen, oh, yeah. Listen, listen, I want the world to know I was there when you did that presentation. I was wow. in the audience. How about wow. that? Wow. And I just recognized who you are after 20 years. Yes, exactly, right? <laughs> gracious. Because when you said Ujama, I said, I know that club. That was our first exactly. introduction to a exactly. Black club when Ioni yep. was nine. Yep. And that's you. Oh, you yeah. have got to call your mom. Yeah. Text her. And yeah, say, you should on, text your mom right like, now. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, like, let's, a hop like, let's, like, let's, like, let said when he was, uh, when he was going on the radio, he, he said he called his mom and his girlfriend, said, "Listen, y'all get the radio, come outside, I'm getting ready to go in the air." So, <laughs> <laughs> call your mom and say, "Mom, you got, you got log it. I'm getting ready to go on the air on Zoom." Mm -hmm. This mm -hmm. is phenomenal, but you know what? There's something that's intentional when you come from a place of authenticity and all things still do work together for good and they come back full circle. And I don't believe in coincidences and chances. And so we created this show for exactly what you're going through because you're gonna go through this to the other side, right? Because you had to start where you were, you had to be here and only God knows where, what 20 years from now will have you. Uh, uh, but one of the things that Ioni and I are realizing and a lot of people that look like us in the same journey that you're experiencing but in a different way is that everybody has an investing story, mm -hmm. everybody. But we didn't have a platform to share that story. I don't care if you're white, black, green, yellow, orange, everybody has a story. Mm -hmm. But for us, like you said, the South side, versus the east or west, whatever side, all of our cities have that same story. Right. But if I choose to empower others with my voice and my energy, I give them power. Mm -hmm. I choose to empower myself with the knowledge and the wisdom and the understanding and, and ensure that I learn how, not just how to make the money, but learn how to make the money, make money, and then share that information with people that look like us. That mm -hmm. is why we created this platform. That is why we're sharing this information to the least lost and the unconcerned. It may not happen in our generation, right? But this is evergreen, this information is evergreen. And so what we're looking forward to is an opportunity to have it disseminated throughout the world because as we know zoom is everywhere and all we have to do is take the podcast and just continue to share it so i will uh, i'll just share uh those are my comments and i'm just gonna put my seatbelt on mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. i'll uh buckle up and just get ready for the ride yeah. <laughs> i appreciate you so much so much love 
so no, much love. I, I got all black mothers have a real place in my heart. So, so thank you for your work. Absolutely. Listen, I, I am really honored. I, you know, we could talk about this off the program, but I would love to find out whatever happened to those other kids that were in the club. We should look at maybe doing a reunion or something. We are planning a financial empowerment seminar in May, and it will be on Zoom uh, in addition to participating with the, uh, with the Better Investing Annual Conference once that date is set probably in the fall once COVID, you know, settles down. But nevertheless, we would love to have that conversation and see how we can strategically, uh, because it's all about better investing and it's all about, you know, that's, that was then, this is now, but what does the future hold as we bring this information of financial empowerment to everybody? All right. Yeah, I think I gotta keep it succinct because I have things <laughs> coming in my head. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's oh, an yeah, very intense. Um, and not even just from the day, but just some other things that came. I don't, um, I got elected to, well, I should say nominated and elected to the BI board in October. So, oh, congratulations. thank you. Um, so, we have something. Um, I don't know if you probably didn't see this press release, but December 1st, NASDAQ uh, sent a press release out in regards to mandating every uh, company that is on their exchange to have a diverse board. At least two seats have to be of, um, for white women or uh, someone of black or they call it minority or LGBTQ. Um, and, you know, that is new and because of the position that I'm in, I, I was aware of that. And so we have that on one hand, we have um, this thing that happened today on the other hand at the, at the Capitol, at Capitol Hill. But before we, we go into there, cause I know you're gonna address both. I wanna ask that transition question of mm -hmm. how did you come from <clears throat> knowing what you knew about money and investing and the, and the power that it gives us individually and also collectively, you know, especially uh, certain groups that are collective investors. And so they are building wealth collectively. Um, how do you go from that to community organizing? That's mm -hmm. one. The second thing I do wanna ask too is because in my head, one of the reasons why I've decided or am still running in this lane is because not I this could be a myth. I'm, I leave it to you to check me on that if, if possible. Mm -hmm. But in my head, I was thinking and hoping, wishing and wanting that that aspect of ownership, stock ownership, owning a share, of a company from a mass community perspective will allow us the certain leverage that we wouldn't have if we were just on the outside. For example, mm -hmm. um, you have a, a corporation in your community and you wanna raise money as a nonprofit. It's one thing to go to that corporation and say, hey, can you give to our great cause? It's another thing to be all share owners and from the top down say, hey, this is the type of giving that we want you to do. And we want to start, I want, we want you to start it here in this community with these organizations. In my head, that's, that's the kind of idealism I would like us to grow to. And that's why I see the power of investing, not just in the growing and the management of the money, but in that ownership, this a new paradigm for a lot of us as Blacks, but an ownership of a corporation perspective, even though it's a fractional, you know, I mean, they have a lot of shares out there, but I'm just thinking transformation from that perspective. And I don't know if that's been spoken about, but I know that that's something that's been in my head for years, so. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely wanna affirm uh, the, the spirit of that. That's something I've thought about as well. Um, it's something in, in Ujamaa 
um, junior. Uh, it's, it's not active. My mom ran it uh, and then I, I co-ran it with her uh, for, for 20 years. And so as of now, she has like retired and is doing other work. Um, but that, that towards the end of the 20 year run was one of the things we were really trying to push. So like, for example, McDonald's um, is headquartered in Illinois. Um, so one of the, the challenges of everyone in the club would be, uh, can we invest in one share to have to then we can go and attend McDonald's as well as Walgreens uh, annual shareholders meetings, which is the thing I did as a young child. Um, but I think this time starting to push towards how do we have a more grounded or principled uh, approach and taking like some of that collective responsibility. Because uh, one of the things I want to talk about extensively as we talk about corporations and investment and profit uh, is about working people and, and, and labor. Um, because one of the things we thought about is like, for example, McDonald's workers everywhere, but particularly in Chicago, were, were demanding a $15 wage. Um, and so if we are talking about the inequality or the, the poverty or the lack of access on the South and West side, um, of Chicago or anywhere, you know, in, in Black America, like understanding that McDonald's and Walmart are the two biggest employers of Black people. Um, and so how can, if folks are living in poverty, are, are working full-time and can't afford to feed their family, um, one, as owners or ben beneficiaries of the, that profit, of that wage suppression, uh, what is our responsibility? Because these are our people being hurt. Uh, we don't have like the same relationship as 99% of shareholders who have a distance and maybe even an apathy uh, to working people, to poor people, to black people. Um, and so for us who are, our work is communal centered and empathetic, um, how do we um, do both is something that, that definitely we, we have questions. So uh, I do affirm that, like how do we organize to demand better things for our community because corporations have the most power in America and in the world. Um, in part in terms of my transformation, um, I think some of the seeds were probably planted uh, in the 08 financial crisis. Um, I was very much able to talk about recession as a shareholder and long-term, you know, this, this is actually an opportunity, right? Like the market will bounce back. I was able to abstractly talk about how the New York Stock Exchange can respond to price fluctuation, but that crisis had real consequence. Uh, millions of people were pushed out of their homes and corporations benefited. Um, and, and, and there was profit in this devastation that I'm like, I'm getting emotional. I, I, I'm still seeing the violence. When you talk about Chicago violence, right? Like we, we were decimated by this crisis. Um, and, and so that planted the seed when I was in high school of I, there was a contradiction of how I see the world and a little bit of, of where this power base is. Um, and then as I got in, into school and got a little bit more access, uh, it was really about learning the black liberation tradition uh, that, that, that then had me be grounded one in what structural racism is um, and how that is inextricably linked to, to capitalism and corporate power. Um, and so as I studied the history, whether it's W.B. Du Bois, Ella Baker, Angela Davis, Martin Luther King, uh, Malcolm X, Huey Newton, the list goes on and on. Uh, they all named our economic system as, as central uh, to the harm, to the incarceration, to the police violence, and then learning the history of redlining um, and the fact that the game has been rigged this entire time. Um, and some of the, the mythology, I think, of meritocracy that we sometimes passively in, buy into in financial literacy space uh, was, was breaking down for me. Um, and so I'll end with this. I think what transformed me uh, is I think I was passively internalizing two mythologies. Um, uh, one, and they're basically related. They're basically two expressions of the same thing. One of the things we, we say a lot, um, or at least I, I, we said a lot in our space, my mother's generation was, uh, we don't have a certain amount of knowledge and we haven't been doing the right thing historically. Um, and like white people sit at the table and talk about stocks and investing. And like, there is this like gap in knowledge and, you know, rational economic activity between our communities. Um, and what I learned is that is actually like not true that like historically over the last century, 
black people start more businesses than anybody. Um, there just has not been the same access to capital. Most businesses, small businesses fail. Most small communities are experiencing some of these um, consequences. There is just real systemic issues a la the number one wealth building notion for all of America, home ownership uh, was not accessible to black people. Or for example, in our Inglewood community in Chicago, I'm sorry to ramble, um, there are people who bought homes in 1970 and relative to inflation uh, that you know, banks have basically devalued their assets. So that's a, a generation of wealth that we're taught historically that if you buy a home, it goes up for everybody, but that has not been true for us. And that is not our fault, right? There, there is real reasons why that is happening and people are benefiting from it. And that is who the F in fetch is, the financial service industry. Um, and so this idea of deficiency was one mythology that learning that black people have been brilliant, have been excellent, have been poor, have been the whole spectrum this whole time. Uh, and then secondly, learning that it's related to this myth that there is a, a pathology uh, amongst our people is the reason why we don't function right economically. And so learning more about black liberation work, which is the tradition I see myself in, uh, taught me about capitalism. And then I had uh, such a, a already clear view of corporations. I knew how to study their balance sheets. I knew how to look at 20, 10, 20, 30 year trends. Um, and so my last semester, I did a, 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 to go back to where I started, um, I did a study of the financial crisis. So this is now 2014 and I'm able to look back at 08 and 09. Um, and it wasn't just like, you know, too big to fail or just like an accident. Uh, it, it was very clear to me that there was something violent happening and that this violence is also connected to war globally and policing and militarism domestically, um, uh, policing and incarceration domestically, and that this is predatorial. And so I'll stop here with my question is like, we need to ask them to do better things, but that our whole society needs uh, transformational systemic change. Um, and so how do we as participants or engagers of this system work to just name those contradictions, even though we don't have all the answers, because I certainly don't. All right, I'm sorry, I'm long-winded. <laughs> no, no, I mean, everything you said, I needed to hear, and um, you are the best person to have this conversation with, because uh, I can ask tough questions and sit back and and hear, hear from your perspective what that is. What comes to mind, and though, especially in regards to this space we've created, hashtag my investing story. Um, a lot of us are black, not all of us, shout out to Ann Newman mm -hmm. on. Um, but so many of us are in our own stuff. Yeah. So many of us are still slaves because we have debt. So many of us are just trying to finally take the blinders off because of how we've been taught to be consumers. Mm -hmm. So what are your words of wisdom or insight perspective to people that are listening that have their own shit that they want to correct? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They are paying off you know, student loans, mortgage early, you know, they're trying to become financially free themselves. Yeah. Um, how can they do that and still contribute to the whole, to the whole of black people, to the challenging of the system? And, and um, all people. I, even I, in I, small, I, even, as, yeah, if, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even in small ways, you know, how can we take baby steps in our lane, but collectively? Yeah, that's such a great question. And I wanna be humble and like, I'm figuring this out too. Uh, and if I had like a clear cut solution, I would have like sent y'all it, you know what I'm saying? Like I, I would have definitely been sharing the good. So I'm, I'm struggling and working through this with, with the team. Um, to, to, to get to my, my, my biggest vision of what I think we should do is like understand that this is a collective project um and that we are all struggling like actually i even want to slow down and just like take a deep breath because i think those of us who have this knowledge are, are very powerful and we try to just like push through and be like you know we're gonna do it but i want us to like take a deep breath of like we are in a historic 
economic recession right now. And a lot of people are hurting, even those of us who are doing okay and have the privilege to be able to like have this conversation, our people, pe- peoples are not okay, right? Like our, our society right now is very vulnerable economically. Uh, and, and that a lot of people are being hurt. Uh, so I don't want to skate past that. Uh, and so I, I think that the solution is, is collective land relationships uh, as, a, as, a, as a first basis, right? I think we need to be able to uh, sustain shelter for people. Um, uh, the, the, the ways in which uh, you know, financial institutions or other communities or other interests um, uh, are profiting off like housing instability or that fear of like paying our mortgage off, paying off rent. Um, how do we work together, whether it's through capital investment, whether it's through political work, whether it's through other redistributive efforts, invest in land trust or cooperative, even ownership, like stewardship of land so that we can build community. Um, and, and in that we actually, uh, I think need to like work on reducing our collective expenses. Uh, so how do we um, you know, share our resources? How do we, we, we carpool? How do we share childcare? How do we make sure our elders? Um, and I think we got somebody uh, talking. We can mute Doretha, maybe. It's coming up in my ear. Um, uh, yeah. How do we have co- collective like elder care, youth care? Um, that that is the ideal that that I look towards. And so I think the investment club can be a model of not how do I just only pay off my debt or start my singular enterprise and look at it through a very individualistic, um, how do we start to build communal goals as well? Uh, so, so that's my like um, my ideal. I feel like there was a second part to your question that I forgot. I think the best, the best second part of my question could be rephrased. What does a conscious investor look like to you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm an investor. I invest in my Roth IRA, I invest in my Roth 401k. Um, I also own individual stocks. I'm also starting to go to share owner meetings. I'm also starting mm-hmm. to get informed on, you know, who are the board of directors, when I vote for them, when I vote for uh, the policies. I remember as a child, and this was the beautiful thing. This was the beautiful thing to me about starting as a child, mm-hmm. owning one share of stock in Kellogg's. Mm-hmm. I was voting before the age of 18. And I took that very seriously. When I got my proxy and my annual statement in the mail, I filled out my vote, my ballot, and I mailed it in every single one. And I remember on one of them, it may have been Kellogg's, it may have been another company that actually asked the question about transparency. These things, from, to me, from the perspective of a share owner, it's amazing to me how transparent voting is as, an, as a corporation owner, as opposed to a US citizen. I mean, they lay it out in that proxy. They'll say, you know, um, vote yes or no to disclose investment in apartheid South Africa mm-hmm. or pollutants or what, I mean, it's very clear language. And even though they may say, well, we want the board recommends no, you could vote yes. You know, and to me, that is real change. You know, there is no electoral college in that. They count every single vote, you know? And to me, I think that was the, the, the conscious awakening of, well, what if a lot of us voted for that type of transparency? Because I mean, Even outside of the world we live in, in terms of community organizing, in their world, there being uh, corporations, um, hedge funds, Mm -hmm. there's a thing called hostile takeover. They do this to themselves. They do, they do. They will buy up, (laughs) right? Don't they? They will buy up this ownership 
they will do a hostile takeover to get what they want and do what they want. And I think that type of awareness of, of, of strategies and tactics is something that can really inform us and in what we decide to do. Because if they can do it, then I definitely think we could do it for the purposes that serve us. So back to us, I'm going to just ask the question. What does a conscious investor kind of look like in your mind? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. I think I will break it down to like three metrics. I think it would be uh, a relationship to labor and working people. Um, uh, secondly, to, to, to land and environment. Um, and then I would say probably lastly, um, a relationship to militarism. So within that, I, again, I say, you know, militarism abroad, uh, but definitely understanding uh, incarceration and policing as a form of militarism. Uh, um, so first, I think the, the, the first and the last one actually coincide. So, I, so what you mentioned is actually really beautiful. You're talking about organizing. Um, and so how can we organize people and then organize our resources to participate in our institutions as a way to shift their incentives and their interests, uh, which I do think from how I understand voting the work that it's weighted based off ownership, that that is a, a very long game, uh, but I do think it's, it's worthwhile. Um, so first, I think it's just an understanding. Especially, um, consider, especially considering how many people don't fill out their proxies. Yeah. So all yeah. the little ones add up, just like pennies add up, all the little ones yeah. add up, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. so I'm not, I'm not as, as active in, in the space anymore. So I would, I would love to look up more of the process. Um, so in that, you know, I would say advocating for workers. Um, one, it, it's just known that like across the, the board, like our, our society is in trouble. Um, and so over the last 40 years, uh, profits of, of the market have gone up exponentially. Um, and relative to inflation, wages have been stagnant. Um, so there's been actually like an, an extraction of, of profit from, from labor productivity. Productivity has been going up, wages have been going straight, um, and that is causing inequity, imbalance in our society. Um, so understanding that it's not even just like a, a charitable thing um, that actually is economically sound <laughs> to make sure that your consumer base and your worker base, if markets is all that you're concerned about, are sustaining. And right now, this hoarding of wealth that corporations are facilitating and, and, and manifesting um, is creating real discord. And so one of the ways that redistribution can happen easily um, is through increased payment to, to, to workers, particularly from the bottom up. Uh, so I would be really diligent around executive salary and executive bonuses because they usually do both out their mouth is saying we can't pay people more uh, while those same, same people are paying themselves more by the, the billions when you collect it uh, uh, all together. Um, and so, yeah, so tag that piece into labor and I'm gonna come back to it when I talk about militarization. Um, secondly, it's an understanding of, uh, you know, for the different companies, uh, where are their primary resources? What are their modes of production? Uh, because the ways in which you know, for example, we can talk about, so I'm very heavily invested, uh, you know, Apple and Nike, are, are, I'm, I'm not as diversified as I used to teach. Uh, and a lot of my, my, my growth and my compounding went in Apple and Nike. So Apple, for example, uh, um, you know, the, the, the continent of, of Africa is where uh, they get their materials um, and, and they do it in ways that disrupt those societies. Or for example, you know, just this year, Tesla was, was calling for, um, a coup in South America to be able to extract resources. Elon Musk said it on Twitter, like let's overthrow a government uh, to be able to, to take their resources to build these electronic cars, right? Um, and so understanding that one, this creates human discord, but this extraction, particularly in the fossil fuel industry, which all production is almost dependent upon, our, our, our planet will not be livable uh, if corporate power does not change the way in which it is collectively addressing our resources and polluting the environment. Um, and so getting investment and buy-in of like, this is not just about being just in like the abstract. This is about, if you look 10 years out, if you're talking about long-term growth, we are going to be in an unsustainable place 
if we continue to try to extract profit in these degenerative ways. That's number two. And then lastly, uh, militarism. Um, uh, so, you know, we've been in Iraq and Afghanistan and nine other countries now for the last 20 years. Uh, and that has been in many ways funded by corporations. ExxonMobil, uh, you know, as an example, is very much on making sure that we have more boots on the ground, more troops are intervening in these spaces. Um, and that has consequence, that has real consequence on the planet, on the world, but also on our society. But I would say more importantly, for people who are concerned with social justice, we have gone through this year, 2020 was the most active political year in human history. And it was mostly around the effects of mass incarceration. Um, and so when you talk about movement, a lot of it can be traced back uh, to Trayvon Martin. And so I bring him up to, to talk about how his killer was let off. This is Florida for most folks are talking about. Um, the Stand Your Ground Law, uh, which we know was instituted and legislated for explicitly racist purposes, was designed by ALEC, the American Legislative and Executive Council. I, I forget the, you can look up A-L-E-C, ALEC. Um, and this is a body of the major corporations of the S&P 500 and the Dow Jones and politicians of both houses of, of Congress and local state houses that work on policy. Um, and so the, the, the policy to, to um, uh, discriminate against uh, um, immigrants in Arizona and the stand your ground policy from which George Zimmerman was exonerated was designed by corporations. Um, and, and, and then also the investment into prison labor. Uh, and so many of our corporations right now that if we were just having an investment club meeting and we're looking at their, you know, making our old school stock selection guide would be doing good on paper. We can get our 15%, we could double our money in five years. Uh, and then we as people as privileged are then benefiting uh, while they are taking those profits and building prisons with them, building more, uh, create investing in legislation to, to criminalize people in a way to control the labor market. Because in terms of macro theory, as someone who studied economics, our system depends on surplus labor that is unemployed people. Our system depends in order to control the prices. And I'll stop here uh, because we're talking about earnings, right? We want to see EPS go up every time. What are earnings? Earnings is R minus E revenue minus expenses. What are some of those expenses? Some of those expenses are taxes. So Amazon doesn't pay any taxes. Jeff Bezos doesn't pay any taxes while we are experiencing bankruptcies. Um, <clears throat> expenses also labor. So what that means is it is in the interest, profit goes up when we pay people less. And a way to be able to pay people less is make sure that there's a bunch of unemployed people or there are people in prisons that will work for a few cents an hour, a dollar a month, um, and it is legalized slavery based off the 13th Amendment. Uh, and so for me, at a moral place, uh, once I started to, I think the new Jim Crow was a good like text that kind of opened up by, by Michelle Alexander. I'm sorry, Michelle, Michelle Alexander. I'm supposed, to, yes. supposed to give you books before I, I settle. We'll, um, we'll catch up, but, we'll catch yeah, up. Yeah, but, yeah, but the 13th Amendment, just for everyone to make sure we, we know, uh, I, I think it's important to say that slavery nor involuntary servitude in the United States nor any of its jurisdiction shall exist, comma, except for its punishment for a crime. Um, and so what I teach people now is that we need to understand that every day that you have drawn breath in the United States of America, which is controlled by corporate power, you have been living in a place where slavery is constitutionally legal. And there are people in chains picking crops, there are people in in chains working on factories and they're working for free and they're being abused and they can't protect themselves and they can't organize. Um, and that's most of the reason why they are there. And the impact of that is my community is decimated. So I have been able to get a six figure portfolio over this 20 years of investing, uh, but I need more people uh, to be able to address some of these contradictions because I don't think that my benefiting or my being able to build some some generational wealth is actually addressing this system that is harming people at a faster rate than I'm able to grow my portfolio. Yes, yes, yes. Um, anybody that owns a business or, um, yeah, anybody that owns a business or, or looks at a business uh, portfolio, not portfolio, uh, income statement should know that uh, labor, which took some, is they now call it human capital, but that's a sign of the times. 
uh, labor is going to be a company's highest expense. And going to Damon's point, this is why um, when you know the formula, sales or revenue minus expenses equals profit, then you understand that there are a variety of ways in which you can increase your profit. You can either do it by increasing sales, you can do it by decreasing expenses, um, you can do it by a combination of the two. And so I do wanna say that though, because um, I don't think people really know, I'm an, I studied accounting. So from my perspective, I don't think people really know how much labor is in the, from the perspective of a business owner and from a financial perspective, and also why corporations and organizations are so reluctant to give people's raises. Um, it, really, it really demands a shift in consciousness. Um, and we have our ideas about how things could be. But one question I do have, because, um, you know, back in the day, I still watch documentaries, but I remember coming across one that talked about um, co-ops. Yeah. And then the study, the studying of other countries and how they, again, I'm in Senegal, and it is very clear how important family and people are over and above money. And so I am being able to live temporarily in an environment, in an, in an alternate reality that is opening my mind to a different way of being. And I told my host family today, you know, you all actually have it better than we do in the States because of what their money can afford them. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they can house all of their family in one house and help in one house and we eat together. I mean, coming from America and, and being a, de a descendant of enslaved Africans, you know, my experience is very different than what I'm observing here where, you know, the help eats with the family mm -hmm. and there is no denigration of the person themselves. They are all Senegalese, they're all Muslim, they're all children of God they just serve different functions. And so, uh, you know, bringing it back to my question, I'm sure you've been studying other ways of organizing society. What can you share with us um, as we start to reimagine? Because I think everybody listening is already doing the steps or planning to do the steps for their own financial freedom within the US. I know I am um, trying to have a portfolio that allows me to work part-time, <laughs> not full-time, you know, um, because I just found out about um, um, the NAP ministry and, you know, I, being black, being poor, um, even being uneducated, those things cause a lot of stress. Mm -hmm. You know, it can cause you to overwork. It can cause you to barely keep up it can cause you to you know just be breaks beaten down, your down body, mentally. breaks down your mental health absolutely everything mentally physically emotionally and and so as as we have a certain awareness or i should say awakening what can you inform us about other societies other ways of being other ways of organizing society so that we start to to be aware of how we can reimagine because i think the era that we live in the last couple of years, um, it has opened us up to be more participant citizens. Mm -hmm. And I think people want to know how can they do for self and do for others and do for community, but we just kind of need it. We need to see something different. Yeah. So I want, I want to start with saying like the seeds are there uh, but we still have to create something that has not yet been fully manifested when we're talking about in, in our space. So I'm sorry, Michelle, here goes another book text that I didn't think about before. Uh, but, but a really important piece um, is Collective Courage, A History of African-American Cooperative Economic Thought and Practice by Jessica Gordon Embrand. Um, and that book goes through about 100 years of the ways in which organizing around cooperative economics 
has always been connected to the freedom and well-being and liberation of Black people of all social justice, anti-oppression, moving type spaces. Um, and so that's a really important book. Um, and what she shows is how many examples have existed, how many have sustained, how many have been successful, but naming that the, the, the way in which um, our dominant market functions, it is aggressive, it is predatory, and it works to create the conditions for, for cooperative models to not succeed or to be really under a lot of pressure. So like the, the paradigm or the paradox has been um, you need a lot of capital to sustain a, an entity that we're trying to work to like help build people out of poverty. So that's why I think the, the, the where we are, where we're talking about this investing club as like a transition space um, to basically be able to siphon off corporate profits into communal institutions, into communal uh, um, enterprise and communal spaces as a way to protect people from the market. Um, so Collective Courage is, is a text I think can spell it out much better than I can, uh, but definitely around the world in, in Spain, um, I always mess up how to pronounce it, but the, lar the largest corporation in Spain, I think it's Michigan. I'm real bad with my Spanish, but um, that's one of the most important, I think, global uh, uh, examples. There's a lot of examples in, in South America of cooperative economics. So you have noticed something that like US capitalism and cooperative economics have been in a different type of tension that doesn't exist in the same way in other places of the world. Um, and so I think being global is always really important. Um, but yes, I, I, I think one of the things that we can also advocate for is like we can start our small enterprises. Um, so, you know, we can start our, our corner retail shops or our own grocery markets or some type of trade or some type of manufacturing that is cooperatively owned. Uh, but I think what the real project is, and this goes to your fir first question about board membership and, and showing up to shareholders meetings, um, how can we actually create passageways, processes, entities within corporations to transfer ownership into the people that make it work, right? Because basically what happens now is a board uh, who's not connected to the day-to-day -day processes, who's not actually present for the decisions has all the ultimate power. And so what would it look like uh, if, for example, workers in Detroit uh, had to be consulted before they decided to close down factories to look for cheaper labor elsewhere in the world? Um, how do we organize as shareholders to say, hey, we actually, whether it's through, you know, a new type of pension fund or a new type of mutual fund uh, or some type of ownership, how do we actually grant ownership to those who don't have access to it? Um, uh, for those who don't make enough to be able to save substantially. Oh, I think we lost it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm trying to finish the question, the answer though. Um, how do we, we, for those who don't have access to income and save, how do we make sure that they have some type of ownership or, or uh, um, stake in these corporate spaces that already exist that are so huge? So what would it look like if Walmart uh, long-term employees had 10% ownership and uh, a third, you know, board representation as opposed to just being looked at as an expense that they're trying to control and discipline? Um, so that's like a small, I think, internal transformation that don't mean we got to burn it all down. Uh, that could put us in a little bit better place, I think. You're back. That was quick. You came back quick. You jumped right back <laughs> hey, in there. Hey, man, I'm like <laughs> puppet master over here. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I will say, though, that I, again, in my own fantasy, and maybe in 100 years, we can make this a reality. You know, there is, um, I think that if we know the ways we can create what we want um, because the time for asking somebody to create it for us, to do right by us, to apologize, to do better, that time has never come and it has been gone. And so I think that creatively as a people, um, especially people of African descent and the brilliance we brought over to build this country. We give, if given enough time and space and rest and imagination, 
we can recreate what works best for us. And that is, I'm so glad you shared um, how other countries and societies are doing it because I think that that first strategy I mentioned in the beginning, we could create our own co-op, co-op, but it requires us taking the individual action collectively to do it. Um, we may not even need to name it, but the actions themselves will create what I think we need. Yeah. Uh, we do have someone, um, Tylene, you have your hand up. I wanted you to text me your question. Um, I don't, I haven't seen it. So we're going to do a, we don't generally do this, but Tylene, if you want to come off, um, okay. If you want to come off mute and share your uh, question slash comment to Damon. Um, now is the time. Ah, okay. So uh, I guess she wants me to, so this was already put, put in the chat, but I'll read it aloud for the people. Um, and shout out to Tali for uh, adding adding facts and research to the conversation. She said that Gallup and the Brookings Institution published a report in 2018 that showed homes in majority black neighborhoods were valued 23% lower than similar homes in white areas. Researchers estimated the lower appraisals cost black homeowners 156 billion in home equity. Um, and then she gives the link um, wbur.org. And anybody that has seen Raising in the Sun <laughs> from an artistic perspective can get a sense of why that is. Um, but I think Damon um, mentioned it and it should be stated because it is a real reality. And if you are not aware of this, 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 this doesn't mean that you have to get mad about it. But I think that by being aware of it, um, it can help you learn how to move forward. And let me say this before I say what Damon said. Even though somebody views you one way does not mean that you are that way. And so we know financially in this country, we are not paid the same. Um, our houses are not valued the same and all of the other economic things when we do comparisons between blacks and whites. Um, but that does not mean that it is not worth the same, right? So I do think that that is a distinction that I need to state for people to hear. Um, and that is also why it's important to become self-educated along both of these lines, because in that type of situation, and for anybody that's bought a house and anybody that's what's called a value investor, value investing is this, paying 50 cents for something today that you know is worth a dollar, paying 50 cents for something today that you know is worth a dollar. And so I just wanna not leave us with that, but with the right hat on, I think we can look at ourselves and look at what we have as a value opportunity because there's no way that we can own what we own on our side of town. And when somebody else owns it, it's actually worth more because if you knew what they knew, you knew the real worth of it, not just what they wanted to hand it over to you. And again, once you understand that type of concept, it can translate into every area of your life. But I'm going to restate what Damon talked about a little earlier. Um, what type of capitalist society do, do we live in, uh, Damon? Racial capitalist society. Yes. Right. 
And so that in and of itself creates, um, I just lost the word, but the second word is, the second word is opportunity. Because depending on the perspective we have, we can start to take advantage of the, discrimin the, the discrimination that a racist capitalist society um, presents and affords us. So with that, um, Damon's Instagram is at Damon, D-A-M-O-N underscore A as in Apple, F as in Frank. And I'm going to check in with Miss Ann before I give you the last words, Damon. Ioni, I listen, I had I basically said all I had to say in the beginning of the show. I just want to remind everybody that Ioni and I are volunteers with Better Investing. We're not we're not selling any products or services. We are simply volunteers. This show is entitled my investing story and Damon just shared hashtag his investing story and I, I actually reached out to um, Tylene when I realized the name of, of the Ujama investment club from 20 was at least 20 years ago right 20 mm -hmm. plus years ago and I'll talk with her about that later because the name of her business is also called Ujama so I invited her wow. to come on please so she could hear your uh, show <laughs> presentation in your investing story. Uh, I am so glad that uh, we had an opportunity to connect over 20 years ago and you are exactly where you're supposed to be. Thank exactly. you so much. Exactly. So thank you so very much. And it was great having you on this show. Thank you, Ayana. And thank you, Damon, for doing the work that you are doing because it is necessary and it is important and it helps inform us um, and allow us to have a better quality of life. So with that, I'll leave you with the last words. Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I just want to name that, that I come to this conversation as a part of a movement. Um, and so part of my transition, uh, I talked a lot about school, but I graduated in 2014. Um, and so a lot of my uh, transition has been in, in communal space, in a liberatory space, particularly that was birthed after the, the, the death of Mike Brown um, and the uprising of Ferguson. I've been a part of the work that is, you know, talking about transforming society as a whole. And that's what this space, this investing story pushed me towards uh, is how do we not just look at finance, but look at finance as part of the economy. And how do we not just look at the economy as isolated, but as a part of a larger functioning society. Um, and so from, from there, uh, all I push and all I, I'm advocating for for everybody is solidarity. Um, and so that when we see folks um, uh, that, that have not yet gained some of this knowledge or some of this access or are not privileged in our capital system, don't, do not have the same access to capital, um, understand that we are taught based off notions of class to separate ourselves, to, to blame people for their predicaments, uh, but understand that, that uh, we are in collectively a lot of trouble right now. Um, and so the, the answer to that trouble is solidarity, working together, taking care of your people. Uh, and I think I just wanna also name, cause we didn't get too much into it, that some of that work will be political, right? That, you know, that, that some of the work of how our economy and corporations fu function is how we gather and organize, but also how our larger society makes decisions. Uh, and so if people don't have access to education, if people don't have access to healthcare, uh, they probably aren't going to be in a place to save 10 to 15 percent of, of a sustainable income and invest in build generational wealth. Um, and there is a, a generational reason why people don't have that access. And so in all of our missions and all of our journeys, just work to be in as much solidarity with our people as we can because we're really going to need it. But on the flip side, I feel like we've been too doom and gloom <laughs> in this conversation that maybe it's just the feeling of the day because uh, this is an intense day in history. Uh, there is so much opportunity. There is so much happening. Millions of young people have taken to the streets wanting a better world, wanting more resources in their communities, uh, wanting to not be uh, marginalized and oppressed by, by, by the police and other state forces. Uh, and that vision of the world where people have what they need, I think is connected 
to, to, to your, your work and what this investing story is about. So uh, I think what I'm pushing for in my last words is how do we go from my investing story to our investing story? Uh, and how do we not only invest in institutions, how do we figure out how to invest in people and in communities? Uh, and that feels like asking those questions will get us some answers for, for a better world. So thank you so much for inviting me and having me here in your space. Thank you. And, um, and having you here has been phenomenal. And you are one of a kind. I'm going to say that. And oh, I'm so you. glad that we had you here as the first guest of the new year and as a celebration for Kwanzaa and all of the principles it stands for, uh, because 2021 is going to be a new ride. And so, uh, yes, Ashe, yeah. we are moving yeah. forward. So peace be upon you, my brother, and everyone listening. Have a good night. Peace.